Our reading tonight is from Esther, chapter 7. And we read the whole chapter. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet. And as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king again asked, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people, this is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet, because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is he, the man who has dared to do such a thing? Esther said, An adversary, an enemy, this vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage, left his wine, and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to a banquet hall, Haman was falling in the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs, attending the king, said, A pole reaching to a height of 50 cubits stands by Haman's house. He had it set up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, Impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole he'd set up for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. Amen. Well, folks, looking at that screen behind me, let me recommend to you that you make sure you have a Bible open in front of you, because you may well not be able to read half the words uh, that are up there, if that's how you normally uh, follow along with where we are in Esther chapter 7. Some things in our lives, some things are very much binary choices, okay? One of two options. You can either do this or that, and there is no alternative. You have to pick one of the two. Uh, So if you plan a particular time to get up in the morning, well, you either do get up at that time or you don't. If, however, if you're lying in bed and somebody says to you, are you getting up now or are you going to spend all morning in bed? Well, that then is a false dichotomy, isn't it? There is actually a third option there, not just two. You could spend 10 minutes more in bed and then get up. You don't have to choose either now or you know, one o'clock in the afternoon. There's a third option that's not been presented. That's the fallacy of the excluded middle. It's like saying you're either part of the solution or part of the problem. Well, it it falsely excludes the possibility of being neutral, uninvolved, uh, which in most cases is a feasible possibility. Or somebody asks you, do you like cats or dogs? Sounds like a dichotomy. Which of the two do you like? But of course, there exist at least two more options, don't they? Either the option of Neither, I don't like cats or dogs, or the option of both, both cats and dogs, please me. In Esther chapter 7, 
Esther challenges two different false dichotomies, two different things that we're often inclined to see as offering a binary choice uh, to set up in those terms. But actually, when we dig in, we see uh, that it is not that straightforward. It's not just uh, a straight either or. Esther's actions in chapter 7 are fascinating. And I suggest that how she behaves has a lot to teach us. So this evening, we have two false dichotomies. The false dichotomy of providence, uh, in other words, uh, prayer or action. And then uh, the false dichotomy of cultural engagement. In other words, morality or pragmatism. That's where we're going, okay? Remember where we're up to in this story? Esther gave her first banquet back in chapter 5 and left us in suspense at the end of that, left the king in suspense. Uh, What does she actually want? Well, he doesn't know. Chapter 6 then forms that kind of interlude with Haman's desire to see Mordecai impaled, uh, then reversed into uh, Haman being required to give a parade of honor. We saw there last week the tables begin to turn. Uh, but even there, as, those, uh, as we have that great shift, even there, Mordecai's safety from Haman was actually only briefly secured, and the larger threat to the Jews remained completely unaddressed. Now, here in chapter 7, the crisis really comes to a head. This is the moment of confrontation, isn't it? As Esther and Haman and the king, as they gather for this second feast, everything hangs in the balance. The king, once again, waits until the after-dinner drinks. He's not going to spoil his meal by dealing with business when there's the serious eating to be done. But the time comes when he once again asks, what is it that has so troubled Esther and offers her up to half his kingdom? Esther presents the problem. Her people are to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. And that will include her, uh, which is new information for Xerxes. Xerxes is horrified. Haman's identified as the perpetrator. The king retreats to consider. Haman pleads for his life, but is ultimately impaled on the pole he intended for Mordecai. Again, this theme of reversal comes through. What is intended for Mordecai's punishment uh, becomes instead uh, the means of retribution on Haman. The evil he intended for Mordecai rebounds upon himself. Notice, though, that at the end of this chapter, still the greater threat to the Jews hasn't actually been reversed. The edict still stands at the conclusion of this chapter. The chief antagonist is out of the way. We're definitely meant to be feeling more positive about the situation, uh, but there will still be more to be done. So, let's consider then how this chapter presents the providence of God and how it does that within the context of the book as a whole. How do God's will and human will interact? How does human initiative relate to divine choice? Because remember last week, last week we thought about the structure of the whole book, how the the feasts kind of uh, focus in on that, that inflection point in the middle of the narrative in the last chapter, and how that points to God's hand at work as more significant um, than human action. The reversal all began of what seemed to be total chance, which night the king happens to suffer with insomnia, and so on. We were reminded, uh, as Psalm 127 puts it, we were reminded last week that unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. But there's a complementary truth to that, isn't there? 
And that complementary truth shines through in this chapter. Unless the builders labor, there will not be much of a house. Unless the guards keep watch, the enemy will arrive unobserved. And these things are true. They're true not because God is limited by us, not because by our inaction we can somehow force him, deprive him of achieving that which he intends. Not that he needs us to rush to the rescue. No, these things are true that the house doesn't get built unless the laborers labor. It's true because that is how God chooses to act. God chooses to use you and me. God chooses to achieve that which he intends in and through our actions. So you can find you know, plenty of books that, with great academic consideration, set God's sovereign power on the one hand and human free will on the other and say, well, the two cannot fully coexist. You can't have absolute sovereignty and complete free will. You're not really free if God's already determined all things. God can't be ultimately powerful if you're free to choose what to do. And these books offer all kinds of supposed solutions, most of which ultimately end up limiting their definition of God. God gets smaller in order to allow us free will. End in a denial of God's ability to do whatever he wants, denying his ability to know the future, and so on. And this dichotomy between God's sovereignty and our free will, this dichotomy has practical implications. It's not just a kind of abstract philosophy, but rather which side of that equation you come down on, well, it has an effect on how you spend your time, doesn't it? Because if all that matters is what God chooses to do, well, then just rest on your laurels. Pray, maybe. Talk to God about what you're hoping for. But actually, the more extreme versions of this focus on God's sovereignty, the more extreme versions, you end up with not even much point in prayer because God's already decided what he's going to do, so your prayers even have no impact. That's one extreme. And then the other is a sort of radical activism. The only way anything will get done is if I go and do it. I have the solution. I must act. So I'd better be up and doing something every moment of every single day. I'm going to beat myself up over every apparent missed opportunity because I might have just cost someone their salvation. I might have just ruined what was supposed to happen. Now, When you characterize them in these terms, these two extremes start to sound slightly foolish, don't they? And maybe we manage to hold back from those extremes a little bit, but we still probably broadly tip down on one side of the equation or the other. We tend to focus in one place. We tend to think more about one or the other. But see, what the Bible does is not tell us which side should you tip down on, The Bible rejects the validity of the premise. There isn't a dichotomy between God's sovereignty and human free will. There isn't a fundamental division between prayer and action. It has always been and always will be, at least this side of eternity, it has always been a case of both and. The two go hand in hand together. 
Chapter 6, readily apparent, God's hand behind events. Everything falls into place just so, without any apparent human decision being made. And then chapter 7 highlights the other side of the equation. We see Esther's intricate plan swing into gear. And this plan, these actions from Esther, are presented in, in how the story flows. This is presented as the necessary means of bringing Haman to justice. How else could this have happened? One minute, Haman is the emperor's highest-ranking official, second in authority only to the emperor, and in the emperor's disinclination to care about anything, he just hands over his signet ring, gives Haman authority to do whatever, he's willing to be swayed to whatever course of action Haman presents. Functionally, Haman's power is near absolute. One minute, he's the highest-ranking official, The next, he's swinging from the gallows. And this turnaround in Haman's fortunes, the turnaround in the fortunes of God's people that mirrors the turnaround for Haman, is achieved in this chapter. It's achieved through the subtlety and the courage of Esther. Just as much as it's achieved by the hand of providence in the insignificant events of the last chapter with their bizarrely disproportionate impact. The two of these have to be held together in harmony. We do that to which God has called us in confidence that he will do that which he has promised to do. And therefore, therefore, desiring that our friends and family might come to Christ, with that objective in our minds, what do we do? Well, we do both, don't we? We both pray fervently and repeatedly, as the parable of the unjust judge teaches us, and alongside that, we strive with all of our might. We dare not presume to suppose that God will act apart from us. No one will come to Christ unless the Spirit draws him, unless their hearts are transformed. This is true, and God can achieve that objective entirely without you. But he will not normally do so. He has so ordered his universe that the normal means of hearts being transformed is through the preaching of the word, is through the hearing of the good news of the gospel. And so it is vain folly for us to pray earnestly for transformation, all the while squandering the opportunities that we have to give a reason for the hope that is in us, and all the while failing to invite them to hear God's word preached and proclaimed. It is folly. Similarly, your, your course in life, the, the path that your life will take, um, what career you will follow, who you will marry, the grand events and the minor details, that course may well, in fact does, depend on God opening doors. But God does not typically open those doors until you knock on them. You don't normally get a job offer completely out of the blue without bothering to apply. Similarly, your marriage. Well, yes, your marriage needs God to soften your heart and to soften your spouse's heart. It needs that. It needs God to be present in it. But that doesn't mean that there isn't value in in making sure you spend time together, in taking care to show love to one another, Why? Because normally those things are the means that God uses to soften your hearts, to deepen your love for one another. 
We know, you and I, we know that ultimate lasting peace is only going to come in the new creation. And we know that peace here and now needs God to give wisdom and compassion to world leaders, needs him to change hearts. But that doesn't mean it's irrelevant who we vote into office. That we aren't supposed to show wisdom in who we put into those positions. A few weeks back, uh, we learned about William Carey. Uh, William Carey, you know, the shoemaker uh, who went out uh, to far-off places to speak for God. And he said, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. Both go hand in hand. We expect God to do amazing things and we attempt to do amazing things because the two go together, because we act in dependence upon God's sovereign power upon God's ability to do what he has said he will do, then we act to achieve that end. So do not accept a false dichotomy between human free will and divine sovereignty. Prayer and action are not at odds with one another. Getting your hands dirty isn't evidence of lack of faith in God's providence. In fact, it may well be evidence of precisely the reverse. Getting your hands dirty is evidence that you believe God will do what he has said. It's evidence that you are willing to attempt that which you would have little hope of achieving in your strength alone, just as we thought this morning. So that's one false dichotomy done away with, false dichotomy of providence. I want to consider a second as well, um, that I'm calling the false dichotomy of cultural engagement, though I concede it isn't uh, the best name I've ever come up with. But here, here we're comparing kind of morality against pragmatism, okay? And thinking a little bit, well, on what basis do we engage with secular authorities in the world around us? To what extent are we free to, to go and to follow a course of action because it seems likely that it will work as distinct from kind of a commitment to abstract morality, Are we obliged, if we're engaging as Christians in the public sphere, are we obliged to present our case as, God says it, so that's the way it is, and that's all I have to say about it? Or are we free to offer alternative lines of argument? Why are we thinking about this here in Esther chapter 7? Well, for me, this question arises from what seem like a couple of odd, questionable aspects of how Esther behaves during the course of this banquet. Uh, Listen to how Esther speaks to the king in verse 3. Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life, this is my petition, and spare my people, this is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. That's a weird thing to say, isn't it? Would she really be unconcerned about her people being sold into slavery? Is the king's quiet evening really so much more important than a whole nation enslaved? Is what she's saying here even true? Would she not have spoken up? What about later on in the chapter? So Xerxes goes out for his walk in the garden. It's already clear to everyone, according to verse 7, he's decided Haman's fate. Xerxes believes Esther. He knows Haman needs to be dealt with. So he's not off for a walk to figure out who to believe. 
But he's gone out for a walk because he has a problem. See, the order for the Jews to be destroyed and killed and annihilated, that order is signed with his signet ring. It's his order. Haman wrote it, but the king has given it his authority. It's written in his name. So how can Xerxes deal with this threat? How can he counteract Haman without losing face himself? So Haman throws himself on Esther's mercy, falling down before her. Incidentally, notice again the the delicious reversal. All of this begins because a Jew refused to bow before Haman. How does it end? Haman bows before a Jewish woman. But in throwing himself on Esther's mercy, Haman seals his fate. Because just as he throws himself down, according to verse 8, throws himself onto the couch where Esther was reclining, just at that very moment, the king returns and accuses him of trying to rape the queen. It would have been hard for Xerxes to condemn Haman for his attempt to genocide. Because he, the king, has sanctioned that order. But Haman presents the king with the perfect excuse. Whether or not he thinks Haman actually has sinister intentions, it suits the king to act as if he does think that. On balance, I think it's a convenient fiction. I don't think he thinks he's trying to rape the queen at all. It's just bizarre. But actually, whether he think he believes it or not isn't the, case, isn't the question. The question is, why does Esther let this stand? Is it really okay that Esther does not speak up in Haman's defense? Shouldn't she be saying, you've misunderstood? Shouldn't she be clarifying that Haman is begging for his life, not making an inappropriate advance? Well, what I think we're seeing here is that in both of these points, both in in verse 3 and here at the end, in both of these, Esther seems to be engaging on the level of the possible rather than engaging with abstract idealism. In our first appeal to the king, verse 4, do you think it would have done her any good to appeal on the basis of morality? Well, it seems to me it wouldn't. Because Xerxes has already demonstrated by his own actions that he does not believe genocide is evil. Which seems a bizarre thing to say almost, doesn't it? But that's what his actions show us. And actually, that's what history shows us that there are plenty of people who who don't believe that genocide is evil. So how do you interact with somebody who's starting from that position? There isn't a European Charter of Human Rights. There isn't a constitutionally guaranteed right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The only rights in this empire are the king's rights. He has the right to do exactly what he pleases, and everyone else can just fall in line. You want to round up all the beautiful girls in the empire? You got it. You want to wipe out a whole people group? You can do that. You want to give your prime minister free reign? Nobody can stop you. You're the emperor. Do whatever you want. So what does Esther appeal to? Well, she appeals to the king's own interest, doesn't she? How will it look for the king if he allows his queen to be executed? She asks whether she's found favor in his eyes. Yes, on one level, that's a formulaic, you know, this is how you present a proposal to the king. But on another level, well, this is what it all hangs on. 
This is where the argument ultimately rests. Has she found favor in his eyes or not? Will he act to protect her or will he leave her to die with the rest of her people? The, the allusion to being sold as slaves, I think it's an economic argument. She's pointing out to the king, where do his interests lie? Even if you suppose that you want to be done with this people group, well, says Esther, wouldn't you be better off seeing them sold as slaves? Why would you throw away money that's lying there on the table? Is she risking the king choosing that option instead? Maybe she is. But at least that would be an improvement, wouldn't it, over complete destruction and annihilation? And then as for the convenient misunderstanding of Haman's actions at the end, well, again, it's, it's following a realistic course of action, isn't it? So morally speaking, Haman is absolutely guilty, right? We're agreed on that. He's guilty of attempted genocide and guilty, for that matter, of the more immediate attempted murder of Mordecai. Morally speaking, he deserves to die. And the story points us to that because the, the, the punishment fits the crime. You know, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, an impaling for an impaling. The punishment fits the crime. We're supposed to see this as righteous judgment. Morally speaking, he deserves to die. But the problem is the law of the land doesn't recognize that. There is no death penalty for attempted genocide in this empire. But what there is, is a death penalty for interfering with the king's harem. In fact, even to come within a few feet of the king's concubines. It's against the law. Nobody gets to do that. A man, except for a eunuch, cannot come this close to the queen or any of the king's concubines. So to be found throwing himself on the couch of the favored wife, the queen herself, the result is almost inevitable. So legally speaking, to whatever extent legal is a meaningful concept in this kind of a regime, legally speaking, he's, he's executed for one crime, despite the fact that morally speaking, he's actually guilty of another crime entirely. 1931, Al Capone. 1931, Al Capone was indicted for tax evasion. He eventually received an 11-year prison sentence and a quarter-million-dollar fine. Was tax evasion the worst of Capone's crimes, do you think? The evidence seems pretty clear that it was not. But that was what could be proven in court. Now, the situations do not exactly align, but there are similarities here, aren't there? It seems to me that what Esther does is lives in the realm of the possible, of the realistic. If Esther had thought to herself, I must make the moral argument. I must argue genocide is wrong, you've got to stop this. Or if she tried to you know, push Xerxes to punish Haman for genocide rather than saying punish him for the attempted rape. If she'd gone for that sort of a pure argument... Well, it, it seems to me she would have met with little success. And I think to suggest that she should have done that, and therefore to suggest that we must always do similarly today, is to present a false dichotomy. Now, we have to be cautious with this, because we're not saying the ends justify the means. 
We're not saying just do whatever you like as long as your heart is pure, because your heart is pretty deceitful. But what we are saying is, be wise as serpents as well as innocent as doves. And so when we want, for instance, when we want to write to our MPs and MSPs about legalizing assisted suicide, which is a good thing for us to be engaging about, we should be connecting with our elected officials about this as it's being discussed and debated. Well, when we want to do that, it is all well and good to make abstract arguments about the sanctity of life. By all means, we point out that human beings are made in the image of God and we don't have the right of life and death over ourselves. We should feel free to include relevant Bible verses when we're writing those letters. It's fine to do these things, not least because our society isn't as depraved as Xerxes' regime. But to suggest that those are the only arguments that it's legitimate to make seems to me rather foolish. Wouldn't it also be wise to to point out arguments that also hold water even if your starting point is radically different to ours? If you don't have a biblical worldview, then many of those arguments about being made in the image of God and the abstract sanctity of life, they, they don't connect. They don't make sense. They don't land. So don't you also make the argument alongside that of the very serious concerns being raised by charities that work with disabled people. Isn't it also legitimate to say, well, the people who you claim to be seeking to serve here, the charities working in those areas don't support this? Isn't it wise to also, in that context, present the opinions of doctors who disagree that this is a wise course of action? See, those arguments might not necessarily be most convincing to you. Maybe for you, the fact that human beings are made in the image of God is more than enough. I hope it is. But those arguments have every chance of being more persuasive to the person whose mind you're seeking to change. Seems to me Esther, dealing in the realm of the possible, shows us that we can engage on that kind of level as well. See, to try and set up biblical morality as if there were never any kind of wisdom from anywhere else, and as if there were no points of contact with other philosophies, or indeed points of contact with other religions, to to ignore those points of contact, to ignore those arguments, is, is a false dichotomy. To say you can either make the pragmatic argument or the moral argument, well, no, we don't have to choose one or the other. We can have both. We can present the biblical case and we can listen and learn from other ethicists. So it seems to me that in the perspective that this book presents on God's sovereignty, and in how we see Esther engage with the empire in which she lives, it seems to me that as we've seen already, the book of Esther does not deal with black and white. It doesn't make it easy. Life would be simple if everything was a binary choice, wouldn't it? A clear right, wrong, this, that, one or the other. But that isn't the world in which God has placed us to live. And Esther's realistic about that. It's a pragmatic, realistic book that teaches us to live in this world where we find ourselves without accepting these kinds of false dichotomies. So let's pray.
Lord God, as we discuss a world where there is moral compromise, where there is murkiness, where we are not always immediately sure how you want us to act. Lord, we thank you that you you are absolutely perfectly holy, that you are never forced to compromise, that you are never less than completely pure. And Lord, we ask that you would give us wisdom to equip us to live in light of your word, to, uh, take, to take wisdom wherever we can find it, to consider the reality of this world where you have caused us to live, to consider how we engage with a society whose assumptions are so fundamentally different to the worldview that you present to connect with this society without compromising what we believe, without saying things that are not true, without uh, setting aside what you have called us to or your uh, holiness or your call to us to be holy, without setting these things aside yet uh, to engage wisely. Lord, thank you that uh, we, we do that confident in your absolute and complete sovereignty that as you call us to act to attempt great things, that you promise that you have all these things in your hands, that it is not outside of your control, that even the things that we cannot wrap our heads around, that yet you are sovereign over them all. Thank you, Lord God. Amen.